Hi, Hi Rock. My name is Megan, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be with you as we continue through Luke's Gospel together. Last week, Pastor Walt started our sermon series about life in God's kingdom. He asked us to consider the gap that exists between the life we have and the life we want. As I've been thinking about that this week, I've wondered, do I have the life I expected? I mean, in middle school, the game MASH had me expecting that I'd marry a Backstreet Boy, live in a beach mansion in Malibu, and drive a BMW Z3 convertible, just like James Bond. I understand that that is not the best James Bond car ever to have existed, but when I was in middle school, it was cool. (laughs) By the end of college, I had resigned myself to the reality that being a Backstreet Wife wasn't going to happen, womp womp. So I, I ended up with expectations that were a lot like the ones my parents had get married, have a family, give my kids a more comfortable life than the one I had. Jesus factored into that, but if I'm honest, being in a relationship with Jesus didn't change my expectations for what life was supposed to be like. That really was more formed by my family and by the world around us. Brad and I got married, whom he had been similarly formed by his family in their context. They were also Christians, but like me, his relationship with Jesus sort of confirmed what he had already wanted. We'd pray, but I wasn't really expecting that Jesus would change much. Jesus didn't get in the way of what we expected our life should be. In fact, the way that I read the Bible and engaged with Jesus just affirmed what I already wanted. Maybe you can relate to that. The life you have right now is pretty okay. It doesn't look too different from your peers and your relationship with Jesus fits within the expectations of the life you already have. Your family valued education, so now you value education. Your family had certain traditions, and now you have some of those same ones. Jesus might challenge some of your sin, like lust or greed, but he doesn't challenge what you should want your life to be like. So when Pastor Walt started us in our new sermon series, inviting us to consider that gap between the life we want and the life we have, well, you couldn't relate. You're already on track towards the life you want, and Jesus fits nicely into your expectations for life. In fact, Jesus might affirm the expectations you have. But what happens when you discover that Jesus has different plans? Everything is going just fine and Jesus throws up a detour sign or leads you somewhere where you didn't expect or somewhere you never wanted to go. What happens when we start to engage with Jesus and he challenges what we should expect life to be like? In our text today, we encounter a group of people from Jesus' hometown who had expectations for their lives too. They thought they knew Jesus, and they thought Jesus was going to help them towards achieving their expectations. But just like me, and maybe you, their expectations of Jesus were formed more by their culture and the world than by a relationship with Jesus himself. Let's see what happens when they start to engage with Jesus on his terms. Jesus has come back to his hometown of Nazareth, and everyone is excited about it. News has spread that he's teaching in remarkable ways and performing miracles. But this is their guy, right? They watched him grow up, and now he's really helping make life better for people all over. If he did that for those people, think about what he might do for them. Now, healing miracles were a baseline expectation. But these people were also hoping that Messiah, who they thought Jesus might be, they thought Messiah would liberate them from Roman military occupation and political oppression. I mean, that's reasonable, right? Wanting freedom if you're oppressed. But the people in Nazareth thought that their freedom would come through reversing the roles in society. The people in Nazareth had only seen freedom come through violent suppression by a ruling government. So they wanted to be a part of the people in charge for a change. Jesus' hometown didn't just want freedom. They wanted freedom through vengeance. 
So Jesus shows up at their synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stands up. All eyes are on him. Everyone's wondering what he's going to say, what scripture he's going to pick. He opens the scroll to Isaiah, and then he reads this from Isaiah 58. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight of the blind and to set the oppressed free. Okay, so far, Jesus has proven to live up to their expectations for life, healing, good news for the poor, freedom from oppression. He's talking about the year of Jubilee, right? Jubilee was first introduced in, Le in Leviticus 25. As a way of practicing being people who belong to God, every 50th year, Israel was meant to have one year where all the people were supposed to make reparations for their sin. They were supposed to forgive one another and forgive their debts, both spiritually and economically. It was a way to prevent generational poverty from taking root and to prevent sinful divisions from passing from one generation to the next. It was a year of justice and liberty and reconciliation. Now, this sounds really good if you're the one who needs to be forgiven. You get to start with a clean slate? No more debt? No more sin stacked against you? <laughs> yes, please. But what if you're the one holding the loan? Or who's been wronged? No way. Pay me what you owe me. <laughs> and I will hold your actions against you no matter what you do because you were wrong. Just like us, everyone in Israel both had debts and sins they needed forgiven. And they needed to forgive. And just like us, most folks wanted forgiveness without doing the forgiving themselves. So they never pulled Jubilee off. But if Messiah was coming, well, it must mean that all the debt they owed would be forgiven. And all of the ways that they had been wronged would be made right. This would be freedom through vengeance because God was on their side. But then Jesus jumps to Isaiah 61 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor or Jubilee. And he stops. To our ears, that might sound fine, but to the people in Nazareth, it would have been jarring to stop there. They knew what came next, and it was just as important for their expectations of what they wanted Jesus to do for them. Because the text goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus didn't read that part. Instead, he sits down, and he tells them what they want for their lives has been fulfilled that day. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus, and he has been the one to proclaim good news, healing, and freedom. They're amazed and perhaps a little incredulous. Is this the same kid who they saw grow up? He's going to do all of this? I mean, things were looking all right for Jesus' hometown, even if he wasn't explicit about the vengeance thing. But from this point in Luke's gospel on, it actually does become explicit that Jesus' expectations for what life should be are very different than the people around him. Jesus might have been from Nazareth, but Luke makes sure that we know Jesus is the Son of God. While the people of Nazareth's expectations had been formed by the world, Jesus' expectations were formed by his relationship with God. He wasn't just the Messiah for Nazareth or even for all of Israel but he was the savior for all of humanity. Luke's gospel traces his lineage back to Adam, the first human. Jesus understood why the people in his hometown were so excited about him being there. He understood that they wanted to use him towards the life that they already wanted. But Jesus understood who he was. And so he gives them a chance to encounter the real him, truly, and to see if they actually want the life he has to offer them. When Brad and I had our first kid, he was diagnosed at birth with Down syndrome. 
Suddenly, the expectations we had for our lives were upended. Our friends were going to fancy restaurants, and we were going to doctor's appointments. Our friends were buying condos and houses, and we were paying for therapy services. Even when they started having kids, our friends were thinking about when they'd be empty nesters. Brad and I realized we'd probably always have a kid with us. At first, I found myself wanting to hold on to the expectations I had had for my life previously. After all, I loved my son. I wanted this life that was more comfortable and more successful for him too. But the culture around me had taught me that we had to work hard, be smarter, and achieve more in order to have that kind of life. But now we had a son who would never be able to win at life that way. I felt guilty about all the ways that I had contributed to that sort of world, that I, I had placed so much value on working harder, on being smarter. I felt guilty that I had contributed at stacking the deck against my son and many other people who had disabilities. And yeah, I wanted forgiveness for the ways that I had sinned. But I also grew to be resentful and angry at people who were perpetuating that narrative through the way that they parented or lived themselves. Other people were still saying, you had to work harder, you had to be smarter in order to be valuable. And there were especially people that were close to us who did that. Because I could see how ableism impacted so much of life. You know, Brad and I had asked our families to help join us and try to make the world a better place for Brady and others like him. A few years ago, I had reached out asking them to consider a particular ballot measure. This would have had direct impact on some legal protections for people with disabilities. Uh, but two family members told us that we were being unreasonable in asking them to vote with us, and, and they wouldn't because it would negatively impact the amount of money that they could make, and they felt like they would be able to do more good if they voted the other way. Man, that felt like such a slap in the face. <laughs> and honestly, at that time when that happened, uh, I didn't want to forgive those people. I didn't particularly care about them feeling free or, or, or being well. I just wanted vengeance against them. I just wanted to hurt those people like they hurt me. And I could use Jesus to justify that because, of course, when Jesus meant freedom for the oppressed, he was talking about Brady. This must mean that eventually those people who just slapped us in the face would experience the pain that they were inflicting on Brady too. But just like the people in our text, I had to encounter Jesus for who he really was and then make a choice about how I was going to actually engage with life. In Luke 4, Jesus makes it clear to the people of Nazareth that God has always been about offering salvation to everyone, not just to the people of Israel. God wouldn't bring freedom for Israel through vengeance on the Gentiles, but by offering the Gentiles the same gift of life. The freedom that Jesus had was for everyone, and everyone had to get it the same way. He reminds them that God offered life to a poor Gentile widow through the prophet Elijah. He encounters her in a time of famine where she had nothing left and was preparing to die. But in her time of desperation, she trusted God with what little she had. She offered hospitality to Elijah. This is foolish in the eyes of the world. How can you give away what little you have? That's no way to win at life. It's not smarter. <laughs> But in God's kingdom, offering what little we have for others is never foolish. In response to her trust, God provided enough food for her and her family until the famine subsided. And then Jesus reminds them of Naaman, a powerful commander in the Gentile army. 
He had a disease for which there was no cure. But in his time of desperation, even though it was foolish in the eyes of the world, Naaman humbled himself and followed God's instructions through the prophet Elisha. Instead of working harder, he was cured by trusting God, and he dedicated himself to God's ways from that time on. These two Gentiles trusted God when nothing else could save them, not being smarter, not working harder. They responded with hospitality and humility and experienced true freedom that God could offer. As Jesus points out, there are many Israelites who also needed food or needed healing during that time. But the scriptures remember the salvation of the Gentiles who trusted God's invitation and responded with hospitality and humility. Suddenly, the people's tenor changes. They literally want to throw Jesus off a cliff. But but why? Because instead of bringing freedom for Israel through vengeance, Jesus is going to bring salvation for Israel by offering it to the Gentiles too. Jesus is serious about salvation for all people. Through Jesus, God is offering true security in places of doubt, true safety in places of fear, true life in places of death. And it's for anyone who is at the end of their own ability who would trust in God. Imagine if Israel's oppressors didn't need to use violence to obtain power, or if they didn't need to exploit others to be financially secure. Imagine if Israel didn't need to gain freedom or security through warfare or hoarding. What if life in God's kingdom is not a zero-sum game? This could be life if everyone experienced true salvation through trust in God. But because the people in Nazareth had never known a year of Jubilee, they didn't know what it looked like to receive and offer forgiveness. Jesus' way didn't meet their expectations, so they tried to throw him off the cliff. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he would continue to show people that freedom and salvation isn't a zero-sum game. In God's kingdom, forgiveness and a new way of life is available to any that would trust God and respond with humility and hospitality. But just like the people of Nazareth, people could not imagine (laughs) that sort of life could actually exist, and they rejected Jesus too, to the point of executing him on a cross. I think that can be what many of us experience when we encounter Jesus for who he really is. Jesus tells us that trusting God means forgiving instead of holding on to anger and judgment not retaliating when someone hurts you, not creating security for ourselves through hoarding resources, and spending our lives serving God instead of chasing money. Often when we hear those things, we can ignore what's being asked of us. It feels too costly to forgive or to be harmed without striking back or to live simply. Our world tells us that we should hold a grudge or that we're justified in defending ourselves. Our world tells us that the good life is one that is comfortable or even luxurious. Of course, one day in heaven, what Jesus is talking about will be possible, but, but now it's just a fantastic utopian dream. We need to live in the reality of here and now. This world operates in a world of winners and losers, and we don't want to be the losers. So maybe we don't toss Jesus off a cliff, but we all pick and choose what Jesus gets to have a say over. We don't want to lose now. But Jesus is asking us to choose to trust God now, to live as people of God's kingdom now, That's what Jesus was asking me to do earlier in Brady's life. I wanted vengeance on those people who voted differently than us. I wanted to cut them off and to never have to interact with them again. I wanted to hold moral superiority and righteousness over them. But when I wanted vengeance against others, Jesus was asking me if I really wanted to be free. To not take vengeance, but to offer compassion. When I wanted humiliation for others, Jesus asked me to offer hospitality. 
where I wanted to be justified because I was on the right side of things, Jesus reminded me that I was only justified in him. And that if anything was actually going to be better for Brady in this life, it was going to be because God brought new life. Not just for me, but for those people too. Honestly, I wanted to throw Jesus off the cliff instead of choosing life in the kingdom. I realized I was so angry at people who were living according to the rules of this world when for most of my life before Brady, I'd been doing the same. Shoot, I, I still can fall into that so easily in so many areas of my life. But it, it wasn't their fault. These people didn't know any better. Just like the people of Nazareth were mad at their oppressors and wanted them to pay, but the Romans had been shown a way of life that was established by violence and exploitation too. They didn't know any better. But Jesus doesn't hold their ignorance against them and Jesus didn't hold my ignorance against me. He didn't shame me for all the years I'd spent chasing a life that wasn't in God's kingdom. No, Jesus offered me forgiveness and a new way of being. I could actually trust in God's provision meeting what I actually needed and what my son actually needed. And I might not be able to change anyone else, but I could choose to live out of that trust. And I can honestly give thanks for our lives that are so much better in those moments where we've trusted God, better than marrying a Backstreet Boy or, or having a fun car or a beach house. Brad's much better <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> we've learned so much through encountering Jesus through Brady and the disabled community. We've learned the goodness of slowing down and doing things just for enjoyment, not to win. We've learned that perfection is never the goal of being human, but reflecting God's image is something that everyone does. It's changed our priorities, our goals, and the expectations that we have for our life. And maybe not every one of our friends or family would encounter Jesus the way that we did through disability. But if we were living in this kingdom that was so different from the way of this world, I know that our friends and family would encounter Jesus and Jesus would be the one to offer them a new way of life. And it wouldn't come from me pushing them off a cliff. <laughs> That's not how Jesus' invitations work and it's the way that the angry mob treated Jesus. But it's not how Jesus ever treated people. So instead, when I remember God's provision, I find myself responding like the Gentiles that were healed with humility and hospitality. Because really, we're all people who are in desperate need of a Savior. In our desperation, we proclaim that Christ has salvation that changes things for us now and in eternity. Friends, this is what our call to live in God's kingdom is all about. It's being honest about the expectations that any of us have for our lives and to allow Jesus to confront them. It's to realize that any of the things we really need for true freedom are not things we can manufacture on our own. And so in the confession of our own limits, we turn to God and repent of the ways we have chosen to live towards the world's ways instead of God's. Choosing to live in trust of God's true salvation will seem ridiculous to a world that tells us we have to win by working harder, by being smarter, and by getting richer. Jubilee, forgiveness of debt and sin, that's just not possible. Except that the way of the cross seems like foolishness to the world too. I think this is something we really have to wrestle with, High Rock. Are we people who actually live as a part of God's kingdom now? Who do things that the world would say are weak or foolish for the sake of being a people who fully rely on God? Who consistently seek to encounter Jesus for who he is and allow him to examine our lives? Or are we a people who are content with just building our own kingdoms for ourselves? 
Friends, this week I'd invite you to examine your expectations for the good life with a friend, your spouse, or a pastor. Can you confess honestly what you think that ought to be? Can you invite Jesus into this reflection? Is there a place that you need to change your expectations and way of life to live as a part of God's kingdom instead of this world? Let's start that reflection now silently, and then we'll go to God with a corporate confession.